Thank you for listening to Talk Jive Radio. I'm Kelly J. Lewis, and I have a very special guest with me on the phone today. I have Sarah with the Norman Citizens for Racial Justice. How are you? I'm doing fine. How are you? I'm doing excellent. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. I know that you guys have been extremely busy um, with your work and working uh, to advocate for the Norman community and not just the Norman community. There are communities all over Oklahoma who are very interested in your work and what your organization does. So um, first, let's start off and talk about the organization Norman Citizens for Racial Justice. How did that come about? How was that organized? And why? So, um, so it's, it's a cool story. I am actually a relatively new member of um, Norman Citizens for Racial Justice. Um, I've been working with the organization for about a year. Um, I joined about a year ago as a white ally just to um, get on board and see how I could help. And um, as our activities have um, have really increased and, and we've started to um, make bigger moves along with the broader movements that have been happening, um, our membership has also grown. But um, the organization was originally um, came together in, in 2017. Um, I believe the, the first people who um, were involved had been working together around some uh, environmental activism um, with indigenous movements, um, indigenous-led environmental movements, um, and then also just trying to take um, action on some anti-racist initiatives here in Norman. And so the first, uh, the first major campaign that, uh, the public facing campaign that this group um, really came together around was the renaming of a street here in Norman um, that still carried the name of one of the um, most prominent leaders of the, of the KKK. And so um, they made a really forceful effort um, to uh, get that name changed, which did happen, um, I believe, in 2018. Um, but this group really, um, one of the great things about it is that uh, we try as much as possible not to use hierarchical structures when we're doing our organizing. So we don't have, you know, certain people that have fixed set roles or, um, uh, or trying to, you know, enforce authority over each other. We really just try to be as flexible as we can and um, just work together to try to make sure that everybody can um, do their part. Um, and so the group has been able to do quite a bit, um, especially in terms of making sure that we're taking up space in our um, city government spaces um, to really make sure that issues of racial justice and racial equity are um, constantly um, on the table and being publicly um, advocated for uh, in here in Norman. I think that's very important, taking up space. I, I think that that's something that, especially this, the younger generation is starting to embrace more and to really understand the value in in that taking up space and turning out in numbers. I think yes. that's another real strength of the social media generation. And you know, as an as a native myself, as an Indian myself, I see, you know, g growing up 
in the 80s and and really in a time where where natives were finally starting to be encouraged to not only be natives but to but to take up that space and have a seat at the table so to speak Mm -hmm. now let's talk about uh the 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 latest effort for your organization and and I want to be really clear because I think a lot of people are really confused about what this means. Let's talk about defunding the police or defund the police. Yeah. Yeah, so this um one of the things that um we do try to do um and it's it's especially important for me as a member of the group who's a white ally um, is to ho- make sure that we're holding ourselves accountable to um, to Black and Indigenous-led movements. Um, and so this campaign really is not just, you know, something that sprung up out of nowhere in, in Norman, Oklahoma. Um, it's part of a, a broader movement um, that is primarily... Um, a Black-led movement, um, and that it has, you know, there's been coalitions with other groups, um, especially, you know, the people who've been developing these ideas um, have been developing them for many years. Um, you know, there's, if, you know, if people are interested in reading more about these kind of movements, they could look to people like Angela Davis, um, Miriam Kaba, who has a blog called Prison Culture, um, Ruth Wilson Gilmore um, is another really great um, uh, leader, um, a black woman theorist that's um, been working on these ideas for many years with organizations like Critical Resistance. Um, and so what we um, brought forward with this campaign to defund Norman PD um, was really looking to um, what are what kind of conversations have been going on um, throughout the decades of these social movements, you know, police brutality was one of the really main concerns of the civil rights movement. Um, and if you look back on a lot of the battles that were being fought and the things that, um, people were criticizing that you really could pull those texts and just think you were reading something that was written this month. Um, so we, uh, what we're asking for really is for people to, to pull back and take a broader look at how we are spending our public money and what we are supporting and what that says about what we believe. Um, So if we are spending, like we are in Norman, $41 million on policing, which we know feeds into um, violent responses to social problems, and it feeds into incarceration, which is an incredibly expensive way um, to try to deal with social problems. But then we cut funding from the things that that do keep people safe, like um, affordable housing or like um, social programs um, that are accessible to people, like education, like healthcare. Um, then we really start to see where. Um, marginalized people just start to fall into cycles of, um, of criminalization that are very, very harmful. Um, and they're also harmful to, um, to the whole community because it sucks up so much of our resources and, and is just a pessimistic way to look at um, how, we, how we view problems in society, to think that we can only fix things by um, putting human beings in cages or by responding with armed um, police officers whenever there's a, a social conflict or an issue. 
so that's kind of the big picture of of um, of where this campaign has come from, and um, why we think it's so important to really for to really respond to these kind of defensive things about um, p- public safety and about police with some critical thinking. I think it's really important for people to understand that it's not about taking the police department out or taking law enforcement out. It's about demilitarizing it so they're not turning those weapons and those resources against their own citizens who pay taxes and who pay their salaries. Yes, um, definitely. That is, um, that's a really good way of, of putting it. Um, because we, we do, you know, a lot of times the people who are most vulnerable um, to having interactions with law enforcement um, are also um, the ones who end up um, subsidizing our city out of fines and fees and all the costs that come um, with having contact with, with law enforcement. And so, um, I, yeah, it's, it's really important to understand that this is, you know, I, I've seen a lot of really a lot of defensiveness around um, talks to um, defund the police. But um, but I, you know, I would bring um, a comparison, you know, as a as a teacher, um, I am a Spanish teacher. And so um, I understand also <laughs> what defunding what defunding looks like um, when we look at education and you know, we've seen in our education systems how um, teachers have kind of been called on to do these wide variety of, of roles that they're not really trained for. Um, but, you know, if we had in, in our cities and in our, um, and in our governments, um, if we, for some reason, you know, we're giving teachers um, a third or, or more of our overall budget and, you know, just showering them with equipment and, and all of these things. And then we're saying, you know, oh, you really need teachers to, to solve all of these problems. If we, if, you know, we turned on the TV every night and we saw 20 different shows about how teachers really get in there and, and, and solve crime or whatever, um, then people would start to say, hey, you know, maybe we're, maybe we're kind of putting all our money in one, in one place and, and we, sh- that's not how, a smart or effective way to solve these problems. Um, and so I, I think if we can get past some of the defensiveness about um, about the conversations around policing, but then also really be honest about um, what the origins of policing are. And, you know, there's, there's a history and there's a reason why people of color and poor people have been targeted by um, policing and why they are so overrepresented in our jails and prisons. Um, and then talk about the way we can um, use our our community resources in ways that are are smarter and are more humane. Well, and not only those groups, but women, women of right. all races. And as an American Indian woman, it, it does not escape me that we are so far down the totem pole that we don't even see daylight. And I think that people, especially those people who are angry and upset about the notion, just the notion of defunding the police, um, really need to consider that if you are a woman and you are a survivor of domestic violence, 
um, if you have children in the home that you can't leave because you're under threat of death, um, and you call the police out to your home multiple times, there comes a point in time where they don't want to respond. And if they respond at all, it's to berate the survivor instead of trying to help them, instead of having empathy and saying, Hey, do you want us to get you out of here? And having those resources available. That's the issue. Yeah, definitely. I think that's a really good, that's a really great point. I mean, as we've seen with um, the missing and murdered indigenous women um, campaigns that have been going on um, and that just show that there, there is um, such an overwhelming need for other kind of responses to these problems um, that don't re-traumatize or further endanger um, victims. And, and I think that's where, too, um, there has been so much broad-based support for this. You know, this is something I understand, even as an extremely privileged white woman, I also have had experiences that have made me understand that the police cannot help me with, um, you know, with domestic violence, with sexual assault, um, the, uh, the responses that we have available to us now and the, and frankly, the attitudes of the, of many of the people in the police department towards these things, like not only do they not have the tools to solve it, but, but then when you start to add in other things, um, like you mentioned, you know, people coming out and having multiple calls, um, and then maybe getting other agencies involved. There's a lot of times when other kinds of discrimination can play into that and then result in family separation. Um, if child services is called and or maybe the mother is um, or the partner is uh, then blamed for failure to protect or something like that, we see a ton of cases like that, especially in Oklahoma, um, where we have had for years such high incarceration rates for women and, and many times even women in those kind of situations um, end up uh, suffering further harm from contact uh, with these systems. So it's, you know, there was a really powerful moment in our um, recent city council meeting when um, some of the residents got up and spoke about their experiences with with sexual assault and with domestic violence and and about either why they didn't report or how reporting ended up um, causing further harm. And it was, it was a really incredible moment because in, as after one of the women spoke about not reporting rape in Norman, um, all of the women in the room raised their hands and started snapping in affirmation of that because I think it's just a, a common knowledge that um, these systems really aren't working for us as they stand now. Well, and let's, I want to talk about that meeting. I want to talk about the meeting where they reallocated $865,000 from the uh, Norman Police Department's budget, and people are losing their minds. I mean, that's really a drop in the bucket. And (laughs) now the city of Norman's getting sued because the voters put this in place and just... I right. mean, let's, but let's talk about the meeting first and let's talk about yeah. the attitude of the officers because I've heard a lot about that. Yes. Yeah. So I think, you know, 
one thing this this is these meetings happened in in kind of an incredible bubble of a moment you know we had um nationwide protests really started to kick off around um the beginning of june end of may um and so we made our demand of defunding on june 6th in in solidarity with um the movement for black lives and and with um some of the just kind of frankly the breakdown of conversation that was happening between us and the um, city leaders. So knowing that this budget meeting was coming up, we just felt like that this was a crucial moment to have this conversation, you know, seeing that despite the fact that within a month, the um, Norman PD had made national news for a um, an officer that had circulated through the entire department uh, a racist reference to the KKK, thinking it was a joke, and that this was classified by night shift officers as um, night shift humor, that we just didn't get it. Um, and so in that climate of, of minimizing the clear evidence of racism that is ongoing within Norman PD, um, you know, in 2018 with the death of Marconia Kessie, um, our group did a lot of work advocating um, around that case and seeing how our city leaders, even in the face of such clear failure of accountability to the people of Norman, that the city was still planning to give um, a $900,000 um, increase to the Norman PD's budget. And so we just felt it was a crucial moment for the community to intervene and to try to take up space and say, hey, you know, not everyone wants this. You're not, you know, we're not really, um, they're not really considering a whole, um, a whole huge amount of, uh, of the residents of Norman who um, this, these kind of funding structures are, are, are actively harming. And so, um, that's when we uh, called for the um, for the intervention into the um, there were there were actually two meetings one where the one the first one was on uh, June 9th and they had planned to just kind of you know pass the budget real quick but um, that meeting was um, was one where we did a call to action and and they postponed and then the 16th the night of the 16th was when we were uh, I think it was a some of our members were in there for a total of 12 hours <laughs> holding holding space in that um, just because we got there early to to make sure that we had space and representation of the chambers. So it was a it was a very powerful moment. Um, I think that the, the a lot of the city council that maybe they they had the idea that their job was really about neighborhood beautification or about protecting historical structures or those kinds of things have really. Um, been hearing from a very different segment of people than what they're used to hearing in those spaces. Well, and I think it's very telling too, and, and this is something that I've heard from several people who were at that meeting, were how the officers were behaving in the chamber, which ultimately led to the decision to be like, okay, yeah, we got to do something. We have to make a statement, even if it's just this. Yeah, I think there, um, you know, it, it is hard, I think, for uh, city leaders who for so long um, have been used to having these very friendly, very comfortable relationships with, um, with the Norman police that they're very reluctant to be openly critical of behavior 
even when it's um, even when it's openly harmful. I think the the fact that we had these two meetings that were really the only um, in-person meetings since uh, the coronavirus pandemic has um, caused us to have to do a lot of city business online. It was very telling um, and something that I think that even the city council and the mayor were very reluctant to even name or acknowledge the reality that was unfolding in front of their faces, which was that the protesters were all um, complying with the mask requirements. Um, we were doing our best to de-escalate any conflicts that um, that happened in the city chambers, but a lot of those conflict conflicts emerged because the um, officers that were in attendance at the meeting, um, including some who spoke at the podium and directly addressed um, the council member who has been endangered, um, just flat out refused to comply with the city's own safety recommendations, refused to um, refuse to put on masks and refuse to maintain social distance, even from um, immune compromised residents who asked them to maintain distance. And in, in some cases from young children who um, were present in that meeting and asked them to step back. And so um, there, there was just such a glaring um, contradiction between these um, what are what are supposed to be public servants that are um, nominally protecting our public safety, but then refusing to take even the most basic steps um, to protect the safety of those they were they were sharing space with that night. So um, I think those those um, kind of conflicts are still playing out. Um, we've seen. Um, you know, how people have really danced around uh, <laughs> criticizing folks for not wearing masks. They've been trying to say, oh, this isn't political. But I, I think we know that it is. Um, it is a political um, choice to not wear a mask. So, um, you know, the city of Norman will will discuss its mask ordinance tonight and <laughs> we'll see that play out on Zoom. And um, I'm sure these conversations are just going to be ongoing, but I, I do think that that was very eye-opening to a lot of the council members, seeing how um, they just refused to take even these most basic steps. So it just kind of makes them realize, like, okay, if this is what they're doing in front of us for a relatively privileged group of people, what's happening out in the streets when, when no one's watching? Well, and, you know, Alex Scott, uh, was on the show, has been on the show a few times. And, uh, you know, when, when I talked to her, it, it was very telling for her to say, you know, I, I'm, I'm a, a white lady who's having these issues with law enforcement and law enforcement believing me about, you know, what's happening. Mm -hmm. And if, law enforcement where where I'm a sitting count city councilor if they're not going to believe me what chance do my friends of color have right to be believed right yeah and i think that that um that experience you know i can speak also from a similar um positionality as alex you know i'm not a councilwoman but i am a um, a privileged white woman. I have a master's degree. I've, you know, had a lot of education and, and had a lot of, um, uh, a lot of the kind of, um, protections from the precarities that others that don't occupy those positionalities have. Um, but even I, um, you know, it was very striking for me watching the Norman, uh, 
the Norman Police Department made a presentation where they um, they held up these what they call benchmark cities, or in other words, you know, the cities that they want to compare themselves to. And um, Alex Scott's experience where she said, you know, even as a city councilwoman, I'm, I'm not believed on my own doorstep. Um, it was it was um, it was very impactful for me to watch the video of the police officers, um, just as she described, um, d- disbelieving her even on her own doorstep about her own lived experience, um, because I had an experience similar to that in, in Boulder, Colorado, which um, Norman holds up as you know, benchmark city, I had um, to call 911 because I um, was taken on a bus as the only passenger off the route. Um, The driver took me out, you know, into a a place next to a nature preserve with no lights and um, tried to um, ask me, even though the bus was equipped with GPS, if he could use my phone, (laughs) which I interpreted as him trying to take his phone away from me, wouldn't let me off the bus. And, um, so I, you know, after trying to make myself puff up and be as big as possible and yelling a bunch of swear words at him, got him to open the door and let me off the bus. And he said, you know, are you sure that you want to get off? Because I wouldn't want to run you over. And, you know, so I'm running for my life. Call 911. The Boulder police respond. And, and I was so relieved when I saw a woman police officer get out of the car. But I initially, <laughs> I just was immediately crushed because the first thing they said to me um, when they asked me what happened, I started crying um, because I was so scared. And then the woman just scoffed and said, we can't understand you when you're crying like that. And so I immediately understood that I was being, you know, sized up as as not credible, as not believed. And after that incident, you know, they didn't take a report. Um, the, the woman gave me her card and said, you know, um, we would really want to know if somebody was doing something like this. So here's my card. You know, give us a call if uh because because if somebody's really doing something like this, we would want to know. And I just thought <laughs> some, somebody just did that to me, actually, <laughs> you know. And, and so I think, you know, there were, and for that incident, a report wasn't even made. <laughs> so, you know, I, I think that people are starting to understand um, that these are these are systemic problems that have to do with culture. You know, in that case, um, it was a woman that wasn't believing me, but she was socialized into a culture of, of policing where, um, that we see that this, these stories, you know, there, there could be thousands, there could be millions, like there's, these are just how people's experiences are treated. And so I think, you know, very similar to Alex, if, if this is how I'm being treated as a person who occupies significant privilege within the system, then, um, then it is an emergency that we start looking into other solutions. That's right. And, you know, I think it's really important to remember that the responding officers, the officers that are first on the scene, they have a great deal of latitude when it comes to if they want to take a report, if they find the person credible, if they find that the survivor, oh, well, how are you dressed? Are you sure, you know, that kind of thing, that kind of secondary victimization that we see all through the ranks. And so um, let's take these last few minutes to talk about what's next and what's on you on uh, the agenda for the Norman Citizens for Racial Justice. Yeah. Um, So our immediate um, next upcoming step is to um, to invite the public to start to have the conversation with city council about what we imagine we can do 
with this money or what it would look like in Norman to have different approaches um, than using um, policing. So um, we are looking at ideas that have been successful in other cities, like um, mental health crisis response teams. Um, we're looking at other models for how to respond to um, domestic violence and sexual assault that don't um, criminalize or um, uh, or further harm the people that are involved, but can actually get to the root of the problem and start to address some of the um, the situations that cause uh, these things to come up. And so, you know, these are these are going to be conversations that are going to be very, very, uh, you know, in depth. They're going to involve a lot of different people. They're going to have to just continue and be ongoing. Um, but the next opportunity, or really the first opportunity, for people to comment to city council um, about what they feel should be done with these funds will be this Thursday on um, July the um, 9th at 4 p.m. Um, and so we have, uh, we'll be releasing instructions really soon on how, um, that later this afternoon on how people can make public comments and participate in this, in this conversation. Um, but really, I, I think it's it's going to be something that is just going to be a sustained and ongoing conversation. Um, we'll definitely have to deal with some of the defensiveness that we're seeing, including, you know, the lawsuit coming from the, the Fraternal Order of Police and things like that. We have to, you know, keep those conversations going. Um, and um, but I think the best thing people can do right now is really just start to um, be in conversation about what how we could do better. Um, and there's so many great ideas and models of um, how to deal with harm in ways that aren't um, automatically by responding with armed officers or by responding with incarceration. Um, and I think especially with the coronavirus, it's very urgent that we, we try to keep the conversations moving quickly. I think that's a great idea, too. And, you know, I think it's really important because this is just the beginning of this conversation. So we yes. have to continue to talk about this and continue to work towards that understanding. Yeah, and, definitely. Um, so Sarah, thank you so much for sharing your story with us and um, sharing this information about the Norman Citizens for Racial Justice. And please let us know if we can do anything to help you here at Talk Jive Radio. Um, because, you know, we, we support what you're doing and we want you guys to be safe out there. And um, thank you for your hard work and for standing up for those citizens in Norman. Yeah, definitely. We really appreciate you um, making the space on the airwaves to have to talk with us. And, and we definitely want to um, stay in contact and in community with you as well. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. Thanks, everybody. We're Indigenous. We're independent. And we are Talk Jive Radio.